Blog Talk. Good evening, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. I'm Melissa Studdard, and I'd like to welcome you to Teferit Talk, the blog talk radio show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature, where our goal is to promote peace in the individual and in the world through writing. We support this goal by interviewing new and established writers and religious and spiritual leaders. In addition to listening today, you're invited to join our online community at www.teferitjournal.com. That's www.teferitjournal.com, where you can read and post writings, interact with other members, and subscribe to the journal. We'd also like to let you know that our blog talk chat room is currently open, and we are accepting callers. The number is 347-857-3009. Our interview tonight is with Floyd Sklut, author of 17 books, including works of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. Sklut is a three-time winner of the Pushcart Prize and has also been honored with the Penn USA Literary Award, two Pacific Northwest Book Awards, an Independent Publishers Book Award, and two Oregon Book Awards. The Harvard Review calls Sklute a poet of singular skill and subtle intelligence, and the Washington Post calls him a tribute to the creative spirit. As well, Poets and Writers Magazine recently named him one of 50 of the most inspiring writers in the world. Floyd, are you there? I'm here, Melissa. Wonderful. How are you doing tonight? I'm okay, thanks. It's good to talk to you. I- you too, you too. I guess actually it's probably afternoon there in Oregon, isn't it still? <laughs> well, it is, but it certainly looks like the evening. We've got clouds and rain, and it, it looks real dark out. Oh, wow, yeah. Okay, well, um, before we delve too deeply into the discussion of the writing, um, I was wondering if you could tell listeners who aren't familiar with your life story about the virus that attacked your brain, causing the traumatic brain injury, and um, just a little bit about how it's impacted your life and your writing. Okay, let's see. We're 22 years ago, on December 7th, 1988, I was on a plane from Portland, Oregon, to Washington, D.C., and the doctors are fairly certain that it was in during that flight on the plane's recirculating air that a a virus, I contracted a virus and it targeted my brain. And for a mix of reasons, my immune system wasn't able to handle it and the virus attacked my brain and left me totally disabled. Um, It took 15 years to get to walk without a cane. um, And I've been struggling for all the 22 years with, with the neurological damage that that resulted, uh, cognitive damage particularly. How's that? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. Oh, I just said, how's that? Is that... Oh, no, that's that's perfect. I just, since it um, pertains to some of your subject matter, I just wanted to make sure that people kind of understood about that up front. And um, also, um, I just, I was thinking with writers, I think, one of the things that writers are really great at and even best at is coming up with excuses to not write. <laughs> and um, yet here you've been presented with one of the greatest excuses to not write and you just have pushed forward and kept writing and 
didn't really let it stop you. And I was just wondering um, if you have advice for other writers who are facing any kind of obstacle. It doesn't necessarily have to be a health obstacle, but just, you know, what they can do to sort of persevere the way that you have and just continue writing. Well, I always feel awkward trying to give anybody advice, um, particularly (laughs) advice. But what I would say is that in my case, writing felt so essential. Uh, this seemed I was a writer before I got sick and yeah. this seemed to be a an illness that was meant to silence me. And I had I had a very powerful feeling that I needed to find a way to reclaim my voice from from what was happening to me, reclaim my voice from what I always thought of as the holes into which it had fallen, the lesions in my brain. And I needed to find a way back. So for me, it was it was an integral part of how I was going to live my life. It was, as a writer, being able to describe what had happened to me and what it felt like and what I did and how I began putting myself back together. And I don't think I could have done that without the writing. So the writing not only was the way to describe it, but was the thing that enabled me to begin um, working with the fragments of memory and thought that were left and discover how they fit together and where they were leading me. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's um, that really, really makes sense. Um, and I remember also um, from one of your essays, I think it was Numbers, um, how you talked about actually there was a period when you weren't writing that much. I think when you were involved sort of in a career that didn't really lend itself to that and wasn't really conducive to writing. Um, and, but there was a point um, long before you contracted the illness where you just kind of realized that you were a writer and you you sort of transitioned from the state of being someone who wants to write to, I think the way you phrased it was being someone who must write. It was like this point of no return. And um, I was just wondering, um, you know, what it was you think that led you to that point? Well, as I recall back all those years, of almost, I guess, 40 years now, um, I when I was silent um, after after writing for a few years at the very beginning of my writing life in my very early 20s when um, I took this this job in the world outside of the world of writing and and was silent uh, for a little over a year maybe two years if I remember right um, a pressure built up it was just very clear to me that there was a huge there was something enormous uh, broken inside of me be- mm-hmm. because I wasn't able to to do what I needed to do as a writer because I wasn't able to make sense of what my life was and what I was feeling and what I was remembering. Um, and the thing that was missing was writing about it. A pressure had built up to where I, I realized I needed to find a way to make time despite having a full-time job, despite raising a child, despite... Um, becoming a very serious competitive long-distance runner, I needed to also find room to write. It just wasn't, I was not going to cohere if I didn't do that. I hope that answers your question. 
Oh, it absolutely does, and um, I can really see how that um, coordinates with a lot of your writings as well. Um, and I'm thinking of um, the Wink of the Zenith and um, the the little boy, uh, not just the book, the, the Wink of the Zenith, but the essay itself inside the book, and uh, the little boy who's, um, I was so touched by the way the fantasy and the reality were kind of blending together. And um, even then, um, you know, you could see this child who wasn't writing was already a writer. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean, yeah. And it's something I came to understand in writing about that period of my life that, oh, I was already doing that. I was all, all the only piece that was missing was the words on the page. But I was already imagining uh, how my world cohered and creating it. So, in a sense, it was just be sort of bringing to the surface what you already were. <laughs> yes, it's it, it's true. It's just who I was and who I needed to be, and I needed to get out of my own way. Okay, great. Um, okay, I was wondering, um, you just have this incredible ability, I think, to move from genre to genre, and to me it seems that you're equally at home in each genre, and I was just wondering if you have a preferred genre or one in which you feel more comfortable than the other. I, I was a poet first, and I believe that I am a poet first, that everything springs from the poetry. Um, I was right but- now. <laughs> <laughs> from the uh from the very way that that thoughts and feelings begin to get shaped in lines and in images to uh the whole feeling the whole sense of the need to be as compressed and accurate as possible in every in every word every phrase every sentence every line um I think it all emerges from the poetry and from the discipline of of writing writing poetry first a lot of times material that i'm dealing with in a poem it will become clear to me that uh i need to go further with that i need i need more room than a poem or the kind of poems i write allow me and uh so something i've written about in a poem will begin to appear in say an essay and has even spread to fiction i plagiarize myself quite liberally and happily. <laughs> but I think that's wonderful, <laughs> um, actually. And I feel that the work is all of a piece. It, it, well, I recognize that, yes, of course, there's a difference between writing poetry and writing essays and memoirs and writing fiction as all that. But to me, it's all a, a complete body of work for me, um, and it all holds together for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree. Um, do you ever go in the other direction, start um, larger, like with an essay or a novel, and then take the same subject matter and bring it into a poem? That has occasionally happened, and it's most often happened when a fragment or a bit that had I had been working with in a longer prose piece no longer fits there, and mm-hmm. it sort of has declared itself as something slightly different and slightly separate. Um and and I realize, oh, this is this really is something that I need to handle in the in the in the genre of poetry rather than in it did it didn't belong in the essay. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you know, one of the things I was thinking of is um, there's a really amazing description of Tumi. Am I pronouncing it properly? Tumi Steiner. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's in prose. And then also there's a poem about Tumi Steiner. And they're, I mean, they really complement each other well. They're not the same, but they're both these beautiful, elaborate descriptions. And, um, you know, as a reader, of course, you just can't help but wonder, oh, which one came first? You know? <laughs> so, also, Tumi's Diners also appears in um, in a scene in, in my novel, The Open Door. Um, so it yes. began, it began um, with a poem. Uh, I was visiting my brother uh, in in uh, California during the last year of his life. He had, He was slowly dying from the complications of diabetes, kidney failure, was on dialysis. And um, Beverly and I, my wife and I, would fly down to to Northern California. Uh, initially, it was maybe once every two or three months, and then it became once every month, and then once every couple of weeks as his time grew shorter. And we would spend time sitting together in in his living room. And, you know, you have this brain-damaged man, me, with fractured and scattered memories, and you have my brother, who, as dialysis wore on, um, was also experiencing neurological complications from the toxic buildup. And, you know, we were pretty memory-damaged, the both of us, and we would sit there and be silent a lot, and then every once in a while a memory would surface and we'd mention it. And I, I was sitting with him, and I remember saying to him, you know, Phil, I remember we used to get up Sunday mornings with Dad and and before we'd go to Coney Island or Prospect Park or wherever we were going, we'd go out to a diner somewhere. I, I, am I right? Do I remember that? And he nodded and he said, Toomey's Diner. And as soon as he said Toomey's Diner, the whole environment just opened up for me. And wow. I was just there in a, in a flash, you know. And when I got home from that visit, I wrote the poem, Toomey's Diner, and wow. it appeared, um, if I remem- remember right, it appeared in the Hudson Review and then was posted on Poetry Daily, where oh. where Toomey's daughter found it and oh, wow. got in touch with me and then Toomey's other daughter and Toomey's son, and they all got in touch and they all said, oh, you just, you remembered it just as it was. It was all true. You you know, and that we've sold the we've sold the diner. It's not, and hearing their voices and their enthusiasm, uh, I realized this is there's more here for me. I need to I need to explore, not just Toomey's Diner, but sort of the Sunday morning world of my family, um, and that led to an essay. Um, so one thing led to another and unfolded into another. I'm not sure I'm done. In fact, I know I'm not done with the Toomeys because. I got a phone call uh, earlier this year that uh, one of the Toomey children was about to turn 70, and the gift that she wanted the most was to have me read Toomey's Diner. um, Oh, that's great. To them uh, as part of the birthday celebration. So how about that? You know, I I have come to realize that my memories and my past are not mine alone, and they're just out there. They're floating. Memories are floating out there, and people are finding me and uh, checking in and 
filling in holes people I'd lost touch with 50 years ago. Um, it, my past is very much alive in the, in the voices of all these people who shared a little piece of it and are able to get in touch and give it back to me. That's wonderful. It sort of gives a, a new sense to the idea of community, doesn't it? Um, really be. Um, well, I was wondering, do you see any patterns to um, which material you have a tendency to rework and which material you don't? Because I know some, some stuff just appears once and then you're done with it, and then other stuff like the two me's, um, you know, comes up again and again. And, um, you know, is there anything that's just particularly significant or that those different um, memories have in common that, or, or maybe you're trying? to, you know, learn more about them? Or, um. I guess hearing your question, I, I think of two simultaneous answers, and I know I'm going to forget the second one while I'm answering the first <laughs> one. But I think we all have touchstones. We all have key moments in our lives that we revisit or key places that we revisit, and and sometimes we do it voluntarily, sometimes it's thrust upon us, the memories and and experiences um, insist upon reclaiming our attention. So I know that I have these a few core experiences that I have visited and revisited in my work, um, but I also know that there's material I'm not aware of that I've written about that may come back as well. In other words, it's not just that I go seeking things out, but things come to right. seek me. It's not necessarily a conscious process, and I prefer that it not be a conscious process. I'm working on an essay now about something I thought I was done with um, and had written about fragmentarily twice before. But it's clear now as I work on this that, uh-uh, no, that the fragmentary working on it was the problem, and I had not confronted everything I needed to confront in the material. Um, okay. And it's going to keep coming back until, and maybe it, I'll never get it solved, but it certainly needed another go. That's great. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to say that I was just looking in the blog talk chat room, and uh, Nancy Waite from Artists Ascension just posted a link to the menu from Toomey's Diner and also a link to... <laughs> <laughs> and also a link to the poem. So if anybody wants to get on there and take a look at that, it's it's right there in the chat room. So thanks, Nancy, for doing that. We appreciate it. Um, <laughs> okay. So um, I wanted to see if you could read a passage from The Wild in the Woods, Confessions of a Demented Man, from your memoir, In the Shadow of Memory. All right. Um, this needs a little introduction. I'll try to keep the introduction under, under an hour. Um, but <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> my my wife and I, Beverly and I, uh, got together in in 1993, um, actually in 92, and then married in 93. And at the time, I was living in Portland downtown, and Beverly was living in a little round house that she had built in the in the middle of 20 acres of woods. Um, on a hillside in remote part of Western Oregon. Um, and eventually I moved out there to be with her in the woods. And, um, you know, I was a city boy all my life, a Brooklyn-born, Brooklyn and 
the time I got sick, I was living in Portland, and city, I thought I belonged in the city. But one of the things I learned in the 15 years Beverly and I spent out there in the woods together was how badly I needed what what I had come to out there in the woods um, with her. So here's the finale of an essay called Wild in the Woods, Confessions of a Demented Man. And the subtitle, Confessions of a Demented Man, is in reference to the neuropsychological diagnosis of static dementia that applies to my uh, my brain damage. So when the coastal wind blows hard through the trees and I see them swaying, I lose my balance even in bed because the damage to my brain has affected the system by which I hold myself in place. For me to retain balance requires work and a focus on what holds still. It requires a recognition of limits and place. I need to stop thinking altogether to do it right. Seeing those trees every morning also reminds me that this is a land of second growth. Much of our hill was harvested many years ago, and I live within the density of what grew back. It's a good place for me to live, a workshop in survival, in coming back from damage. A person doesn't escape to a place like this. It's not exile. It's home. I'm not getting any better but I'm also not getting any worse. At 54, after 13 years of living with static dementia, I've discovered just where that leaves me. Since I cannot presume that I will remember anything, I must live fully in the present. Since I cannot presume that I will understand anything, I must feel and experience my life in the moment and not always press to formulate ideas about it. Since I cannot escape my body and the limits it's imposed on me, I must learn to be at home in it. Since I can do so little, it's good to live in a place where there's so little to do. And since I cannot presume that I will master anything I do, I must relinquish mastery as a goal and seek harmony instead. The short, grizzled guy living up the Amity Hills looks like me and for the most part seems like me. He goes out in a storm to bring in a few logs for the wood stove he uses a homemade privy balanced between a pair of oak when the power's out, which means the well can't pump, which means the toilet can't be used. He's learned to catch live mice in his gloved hands in his bedroom in the middle of the night and release them unharmed in the woods. He sits in an Adirondack chair reading while bees work the rosemary and hyssop nearby. He's my twin, all right, my demented self, wild in the woods, someone I did not know I had inside me. Wow, thank you. That was beautiful um, and very inspiring, too. Um, I love how you talk about how the land itself is a kind of lesson in returning back from damage. Um, and you were talking um, before you read the passage about um, getting to the woods and recognizing that uh, you needed to be there. And um, I'm wondering, um, do you think or can can you talk about um, the importance of the surroundings and location in a writer's life? Well, you know, or that's a bit, life as a writer. <laughs> a bit of an abstract thought for me to try to wrestle with. Um I, I know that I know that when when you're sick, particularly, um there's this great temptation always to be focused on yourself and on this symptom or that symptom, symptom mania, I think of it as. And you're always, you, 
you just always turned inward and watching every every new twinge and every change it's it's tremendously narcissistic long-term illness and and it's dangerous for a writer i think to always be always be turned inward in that in that kind of um intense way so one of the things that certainly my surroundings helped me do is move outside myself now of course that led right back in as i began to see right. some of the connections but it was something i had not done really before i mean i grew up in as i said in brooklyn we didn't have nature and we didn't have i didn't grow up really focused outside um learning anything from what I saw around me or not learning anything important. Um, and it took moving to the woods and slowing down both because of illness and because of where I was um, to begin to look far enough outside myself to see myself freshly again. Mm-hmm. And it continues. Uh, we no longer live in the woods. Uh, Beverly and I now live in, in Portland and um, right close to the river and you know, I learn a great deal every day just watching what the river does. But that's a habit that I didn't learn until my time in the woods. Okay, that's interesting. So um, I remember reading about the circular house. Did you move to or away from the circular house when you moved from the woods to the river? Uh, we moved away from the, the little round house in the woods. It was it was mm-hmm. a cedar a cedar yurt. It was wonderful um, with, you know, Windows um, allowing us a tremendous view down the hillside and passive solar um, through a, a, a giant skylight that, that we had. It was a wonderful place to live. But yeah, we left. We left that um, uh, four years ago. It sounded beautiful. <laughs> so, yeah, and just unique and and all of that. So it, that that was a neat place to live for a while. Um, Okay, so um, I wanted to ask you a question about sonnets because I've noticed that you write um, a lot of form poems in in general, but that a lot of them are sonnets, and you've just done so many creative things with the sonnet and, uh, you know, sort of stretched them to their limits and then snapped them back into shape. And uh, one I even noticed has the same first line and last line. And I'm just, I'm wondering what it is about the sonnet form in particular that appeals to you so much and if you intend to continue playing around with that form. Well, yeah, I'm I'm very drawn to traditional forms. Um and particularly to playing with them and finding myself liberated within them. Um I think mm-hmm. I think the nature of my own personality, my own character um shaped as it was by my childhood and experiences in in growing up um i need i need structure i need i need order in order to feel um to feel my imagination uh freed i i i'm just a person who requires order it doesn't always have to be traditional formal structure it i don't have to write sonnets i i half the poems i write are not in traditional forms but even even the ones that are in free verse have some kind of structural or organizing principle that has been discovered in the composition. Um, I, you feel I'm, that... Um, oh, go ahead. I'm just very drawn to order. Now, why that 
is a sonnet I, I really can't say other than I'm pretty steeped in Shakespeare and have always been drawn to the way a sonnet, particularly Shakespearean sonnet, allows you to to think and mm-hmm. and play with ideas within within the form. My my language is always very colloquial and and loose um, mm-hmm. within the rigid structures. But uh, the mm-hmm. sonnet seems just about the right length for me. Maybe it's because I'm such a short person. <laughs> Well, also, I think the sonnet, I mean, it just lends itself to a sort of logical unfolding, which I think uh, is very compatible with um, with the way you write. I mean, it seems that way to me. Um, and I was wondering, um, because you talked about the, the poems that are not in a traditional form, still having the formal element, and do you feel like writing in the form has um, influenced those those other poems to where you sort of, uh, because what it seems like to me is that you sort of create your own structure in the poems that don't have a formal structure already. Does that make sense? That's what I do. And and it's all a process of discovering it as I'm doing the work. But I think the work within the rigid forms allowed me um, to become comfortable thinking in terms of the line and in terms of of the, the, uh, the development within within what a poem uh, allows uh, the different the different tools that poetry provides sound music uh, meter rhyme um, rhythm working in the traditional forms has allowed i think has enabled me to bring some of that to the non-traditional poem as well and i realize as i try to talk about this that i don't spend a lot of time thinking about what i do and mm-hmm. forming forming theories about why I do what I do. In fact, I, I tend to shy from that like a ball player who doesn't want to think too much about his hitting because then all of a sudden you're too busy thinking and you can't hit. Um, yeah. I've just never, <laughs> never written any essays about how I write essays or about how I write poems, and I don't think about it too much. I just I try to stay away from going there, in fact, which makes me a lousy interview, I think. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And um, in fact, I think it's one of the reasons that um, your poems seem so natural um, and just flow so well. In fact, I, I, you know, I've been studying poetry for years and years. I have an MFA in poetry. I have an MA in literature, uh, in which I studied poetry. And um, I have to admit, I was reading one of your books, and I just thought to myself, "My God, I don't know anything about poetry." <laughs> you know. I thought I did all these years, and then I, I saw the things that you were doing just very naturally. And um, I really, I just, I was really blown away. Um, so I, I appreciate what you're doing. And I don't think there is a need to necessarily be able to analyze your own work, you know, um, yeah. as long as you keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, I've always, I really have always shied away from that. Uh, and, you know, maybe one of the side benefits of being sick and disabled is, uh, I don't get out in the world that much, so people I don't talk to a lot of people, and um, and get asked these questions all that much. So it's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, speaking of, um, I'm going to go ahead and try to take a caller, and I have to say that in the past uh, the line hasn't always worked. So I don't know if it will or not, but I'm just going to give it a try um, really quickly. And if if it doesn't work, we'll just move on. So, okay. Um, okay. Um, now it's saying caller muted. Okay, are you there? 
Hello? Are you there? Okay. I'm here. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so you're the one I want to talk to. We'll keep talking. Um, I wanted to see if, uh, while we're on the subject of poetry, if you could read a poem. Um, and I had in mind um, a unified field from the Snow's Music. Great. So the unified field, yes, it's in my most recent book, the, the Snow's Music. And I'm glad you asked me to read this. I haven't read this to audiences very much. Um, it's a poem that that uses the language and some notions from the fields of physics and astronomy. Um, and I've always thought that this is about daring to to love balance and harmony in the world enough to go look for it, um, uh-huh. and even to foster it with like the daring act of sustaining hope and of keeping faith in goodness. So, a unified field. Because the night is clear and cold, because the moon is new and Mars so close it seems to be in bloom, because his mind imagines room for wonder, he sees everything hold together a moment under the stars. He knows it will not last, but loves to see the world in balance, dark forces merging with light, the drift toward chaos stilled by the heft of harmony, a unified field. Above all, this is how he leaves his mark. Now, night bends toward dawn as light toward color. Time is nothing we believe it to be, but at the edge of sight his faith sings beyond the things we see. The torn fabric of the universe folds over to heal itself, the beating heart's energy echoes, the brain's bold leaps. This is when the mystery starts to reveal itself, saying there are no answers, only better questions, new beginnings. There is nowhere else to go, no one else to ask, and nothing less to do. Great. Thank you. That is a beautiful poem. And um very, very deep. <laughs> um, I I was wondering, um, I I can't help but ask who the unnamed he is in the poem, if you had someone uh, or something specific. Yes, there is somebody specific. And let me see, it, it's hinted at in the acknowledgments to the book, um, at the very front of the book. Um, this poem, A Unified Field, was commissioned by my alma mater, Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, on the retirement of the college provost, a, a fellow named Bruce Pipes, who's a okay. dear friend of mine, and he was a physicist by training before he became a provost. And mm-hmm. as he was retiring, the thing he was hoping to do most was spend more time in his backyard with his uh, telescope looking at the stars. So when I was asked to write the poem for Bruce, um, I, you know, I knew that he was a physicist. I knew that he loved astronomy. And I had been thinking about these concepts anyway. It was almost as though huh, the very forces I was thinking about writing about had conspired to ask me to write the poem. And wow. um, I read it I read it at the uh, commencement ceremony where he was given an honorary degree and I was too. I received an honorary degree from Franklin and Marshall, my alma mater, at the same time. So this was just a love fest. I mean, I was just excited. 
with delight getting to be back there on campus and getting honored as as a recipient of an honorary degree and then being able to help in their honoring of Bruce. Well, great, great. And I'm sure he must have just loved the poem. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they, they they gave him, uh, they had, they had the poem printed on very fine paper, and I think they made five five broadsides and gave him a framed copy, and he seemed to be happy with it. Yeah. Great, great. And I, well, while we're on the subject of poetry, I do have one last question about poetry. And um, you said in the night side that poets should really kind of stretch their flanks and write some longer narrative poems instead of always just sticking to the shorter lyric poems. And um, I was wondering if you could talk about some of the benefits of writing the longer poems, I I guess even if they're not successful, just the practice of it. Well, I think it's useful um, to go where you're not normally drawn to go. And for me, the short poem has always been the the poetry that I'm most comfortable with. And once I got sick and sustaining sustaining concentration for long periods of time, um forming abstract thoughts, all these all these powers that would be useful in the writing of long poems were gone. And so for me, trying to find a way to get past that and sustain something um, that seemed to me to be beyond what I was capable of doing, became very urgent. Um, and in my case, the long poem has most often tended to be composed of shorter fragments that cohere um, together. So that, uh, a six-page poem might be written in 12 different shorter sections that that link together. But I've also written a few poems, a few narrative poems that, that were longer um, Mm-hmm. Several pages long, and, and for me, that's the reason I find it so attractive because I, it's so difficult for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to see if if I if I have material that that feels like it can go on and on. I'd like to see what happens if I do go on and on after it. Right, right. Um, and do you find that approaching narrative in that way is very different from approaching it in, say, a short story or a novel? I mean, obviously it's shorter, I, I understand, but yeah, just... The long poem, you know, right, right, is short. Um, I think the challenge is that even even in a longer poem, there's so much left out that mm-hmm. sustain a narrative across across a poem is is more difficult because it's even more compressed um than trying to sustain a narrative in in a novel and or in the, across across the length of a of an essay of say 15 or 20 pages um mm-hmm. just for me there's just less and less room um in a, in a poem okay okay thanks um I just have to ask really quickly, um, I just think that you have some of the best titles I've ever seen, and um, I was wondering, really, I mean, Going, Going, Gone, Gray Area, Honeymoon with the Feminine Divine, they're just uh, really fantastic, and the, the you know, Demen- Confessions of a Demented Man, subtitle there, um, and I was just wondering if you have um, a process for coming up with your titles, or is it just different every time? Um I'm curious because I know my students have a hard time coming up with titles. 
I don't – it's not usually difficult, and usually it emerges from within the work that I'm doing. Um, the titles mm-hmm. are all – very seldom uh, do they come and just get sort of layered on, on and I write to the title. Usually it emerges from the encounter with the material, and I think because I write so slowly and mm-hmm. from fact with my material for a very long time before I write – and part of that process seems to be also the the title does declare itself as I'm struggling to figure <clears throat> figure out where things are going. Okay, <coughs> that makes sense, and um, that that explains a lot of what I like about the title too, because it's so organically related to the material, which oh, I yeah. think. Well, excuse me, I'm having a little <clears throat> problem here. <clears throat> Yeah. Do you need to take a break and get some water or anything? Let me take a sip of the tea. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, I'm back. All right. Yeah, great, great fun, and I've almost never had problems with titles, the one exception being the book of short stories that I'm going to be publishing next year, um, perhaps because I've written so few short stories. Um, and as I collected the, what I thought were the best from 35 years of publishing them, um, I really had trouble coming up with a, a title. But I have one now, and it's a title that I'm happy with. And, but that was the hardest uh, of all the titlings, to come up with one for a book of short stories. So what's the title? <laughs> uh, yeah, the title is Kohlrabi, which is oh, okay. a, a vegetable. Um, a vegetable. And it... it, it Speaking of organic titles. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, great. And actually that, you know, you said you've been, um, you know, 35 years of short stories, and, and that sort of makes me think about um, how, you know, y- you really started publishing in really good journals um, in the 70s and were starting to have a lot of success with your poetry, but then you waited until the early 90s to publish your first book, and now you've sort of, you know, in the meantime, you've written all these novels that you've published, and you've you've published lots of books, but you waited until now to come out with a collection of short stories, and um, you're, to me, you're really a model of patience um, with the writing, and I was just uh, wondering, I know you you said you don't like to give advice, but I know people will want to hear if you have any advice to other writers, uh, particularly beginning writers, on how to cultivate that sense of patience with their work to wait until the time is right to bring the work out. Well, I guess I would respond with an anecdote. Um, I wasn't always smart enough to do that, and in the 70s, particularly, um, I felt tremendous pressure to publish uh, my poems. And mm-hmm. I was working a full-time job, as I, I said earlier, and, you know, raising raising my child and, and running competitively and, and writing as well. And it got into my mind that... You know, in order to justify the allocation of time to the to the writing, by golly, I had to publish. Why? Uh, mm-hmm. Doing a cost benefit analysis, and the cost that I was uh, accruing in stealing time to write, the benefit would have to be publication. And so I was just all I cared about was getting a poem done and out. Mm-hmm. And 
I published so much stuff in the 70s that wasn't very good for that reason. And I know it's not possible to go around to every library in America and pilfer <laughs> magazines that no longer exist in the world. Um, but I published a lot of bad stuff, and it was because I was in a rush to publish and right. did finally learn that that I needed to take my time and I needed to be sure that that I didn't just get a poem done, but that I had done everything that needed to be done to satisfy what the poem needed to be, that I had right. discovered everything that the material wanted me to discover, rather than forcing my way through it, ramming it into shape, and by golly, publishing it. So, <laughs> so I, I guess it would be... Oh, go ahead, please. I guess my advice would be don't rush. Enjoy Enjoy the the process of discovery, the act of writing, um, and make sure that you stay with it long enough to to find out everything that needs to be included, um, and then to remove everything that doesn't need to be included, and just don't rush to publish. It's I know it's enough to say once I've published seventeen books, but um, right. <laughs> Well, but that's the thing. Yes, you've published 17 books, but, um, you know, there was a long time when you were writing and, and you weren't. So, I mean, still you're a model of this, you know. You may have uh, gone crazy on the journals for a little while, but <laughs> I think it's safe to assume that some of those poems didn't make it into your collection. <laughs> my, first, my first collection, which came out uh, in 1994 when I was 47, um, okay. gathered, gathered, the best poems from the first uh, oh, 22 years of writing. Okay, so, yeah, and you've it, been so prolific since then. Um, it's really amazing. Um, you know, sometimes two or three books a year. So. That, a lot of that has to do with the vagaries of the editorial process. Um, my first three novels were written before I got sick, but not published till after I got sick. So it looked... Okay. It looked as though, my goodness, you know, he got sick, and now look what happened. He's just, you know, spitting out one novel after the other. But, in fact, they were all done before I got sick. Um, well, I and, figured that was probably the case. <laughs> and that was the case with I, the poems in the first book, all, all but a few. And um, I never wrote any essays until I had gotten sick in 1990. In 1990 was the first essays. Um, just two years after I got sick, so it, you know, it's just, it, it looks like abundant, prolific uh, productivity, but in fact, a lot of it had to do with a big inventory uh, at the time I got sick. Okay, okay, great, thank you. Um, you know, I I don't normally <laughs> ask interviewees about their family members, but I have to admit, I'm totally fascinated with your wife, um, Beverly, after reading your memoir. <laughs> And your memoirs, and I was wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about how her spirituality has impacted your own spiritual evolution. And um, in particular, I'm really interested in hearing more about Mother Mira and your honeymoon experience, if you'd like to talk <laughs> about that a little bit. <laughs> Can I claim the memory damage? And <laughs> <laughs> Well, I could tell about it. <laughs> I'm kidding, from what I've read. But uh, No, if, if you don't want to, please don't. But if, if you want to, I'd love to hear about it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. We we go often 
Beverly comes to all my all my readings and is just been so tremendously supportive and people will come up after a reading and talk to her and she she says, you know, the way you've written about me, I sound like St. Beverly. I'm not like this. <laughs> well, she sounds very interesting, definitely. She's a very deeply spiritual person and and I was not um conscious in my in my own self of the spiritual dimension and until in part getting together with her, in part moving to the woods and slowing my life down and in part getting sick, all these things turned me both more deeply inward but also outward, you know, and opened me up to forces that I had not let in before. Um uh, but, you know, beyond that I I really don't know what else I, I can say other than I sure feel blessed to have found her and to be with her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I know that you said that at one point you you thought of um, spirituality as sort of a form of intellectual weakness. It was it was kind of frou frou, you know. You didn't really take it right. um, as seriously. But then um, o- over time, I can see the evolution of how you know the, the combination of things that you mentioned has um, really gradually affected a change which um i think is very interesting and um yeah okay so you're going to ignore mother mira <laughs> well it was a long time ago um and, and and uh yeah i guess i don't really have anything fresh to say um about that experience uh, but it, it as far as that that essay goes, it was true that before Beverly and I got married, she and her best friend had planned a trip to Germany to to be in the presence of of this woman. Um, and yeah. we saw no reason for the fact that we were we had just gotten married to cancel her trip. So we brought her friend along on our honeymoon and went there. <laughs> right, um, that's great. And um, that's to me, that's just another one of those great titles too. Honeymooning with the Feminine Divine, I saw that and I said, oh, my gosh, I've got to read this right now. I mean, I, it was one of those things where it was in the collection and I, I skipped forward and read that and then went back to the beginning and <laughs> read the rest of the collection. So, what, did you, um, what, did, what was your reaction to it? Well, I thought it was just wonderful and um, just, I mean, especially that you would be open to such an unusual and unique experience. And it sounds to me also like you guys still figured out a way to make the honeymoon work because, you know, Mother Mira was only receiving visitors on certain days of the week and then the other days you would go off um, with just the two of you, correct? So, um it sounds like it was still a nice honeymoon, but um, you got to have also this unusual sort of healing experience, which even after the fact, it, it seems like you were a little skeptical about. But um, but you, if I have the chronology correct, um, did you say that you wrote The Night Side? You had written three chapters of it? and No, not The Night Side. Which the Open Door. The open door. Yeah, the open door. Okay, it was so. it was more, more than three chapters. I may have said three chapters, but uh, once I got once I got into the material, I realized that I had uh, more like seven of the chapters were already written and published as separate stories. Oh, oh, that's neat. And then you put them together as a novel. Um, okay. Uh, well, I that. Oh, go ahead, please. 
No, I, that's that was the process after we came <laughs> after we came back from from our honeymoon. Um, we I had uh, been given a writing residency at the Villa Montalvo in Saratoga, California, and so we went there for for six weeks, and that's where I pieced together the existing stories and wrote the connective tissue that made the the novel The Open Door. You know what's kind of interesting to me about that? Um, when I was reading The Open Door, I just I kept thinking, wow, this has a really pronounced narrative voice. And I know sometimes that's hard to sustain for an entire novel. Um, you know, a, a voice that that's, is that pronounced is usually um, just in a short story or something, but, but it goes mm-hmm. through the whole novel, and then now you're telling me that it was pieced together from separate short stories. So, And, and it's so cohesive. Um, I don't know. I don't know how you did that, really. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, it probably goes back to something we talked about at the very start, which was certain material has always come up for me and insisted mm-hmm. upon deeper, deeper investigation. And a lot of the a lot of the material, a lot of the moments that that formed the core of the open door were actually originally poems, which then became stories, which then became the novel. And okay. in fact also ended up after the novel was written becoming key elements in the uh, memories that that form part of the in the shadow of memory. So that was a, a case of poetry leading to short stories, leading to a novel, leading to essays, all dealing wow. with <laughs> material. That's amazing. Um, I was in, this. This may be sort of too general of a question, and if it is, just let me know and we'll move on. But um, I just couldn't help but wonder when I was reading the open door. Um, do you feel like the novel um, reflects? generational differences and attitudes towards child rearing or do you feel that the situations in the novel are more unique to the particular family and uh, the reason I ask is not as much because of the relationship between the parents and the children but because the grandparents seem um, sort of to just look the other way and um, I I just don't think that it would be the same now. (laughs) Well I don't know if that's true or not uh, Melissa. I I don't believe that that novel deals with generational issues. I do think it believe it deals with uh, terrible specific issues of of child abuse um, mm-hmm. that that were a function of a very sick dynamic between the main characters. Um, and you know, I I think it is true your comment that uh, the grandparents, the the older generation, looked the other way. That may be the mm-hmm. case. So did, it, it seems like um, within the context of that novel, everybody did. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, even the teachers and everyone. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't know that. I, I would hope that that's not what happens nowadays because we are more conscious of these things. But I don't know. I hope it's. I hope it's not the way it was then. I can't speak to that. Um, but you know that novel attempted to do something really weird. It attempted to write a comedy that dealt mm-hmm. with that dealt with child abuse. It, it intent the intention was I came to realize that the intention was to keep the reader 
as off balance as the children in the book were. You never know when it's safe to relax and enjoy the comedy um, mm-hmm. book because something awful will happen in a heartbeat. Um, and I, you know, I'm not sure it was a successful attempt uh, or a successful novel, um, but that was what I was trying trying to do. I was trying to make the reader so uncomfortable um, that they would share this this sense of of a lack of safety. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think that was definitely accomplished, and I also saw the humor um, in in quite a few places. So, um, I mean, you know, it's it's hard to be funny with a subject like that, but um, definitely I saw it um, in the novel. So, um, I, I was going to ask you also from back in your Franklin and Marshall days um, when you. Um, studied with the writer, and I'm trying to find his name right now. I know the last name was Russell. Was the first name Robert? Robert Uh, Robert. Okay, great. And you wrote about him in that essay, When the Clock Stops, which is one of my favorite essays of yours. And um, you talk about reading Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury aloud for him. And um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how it impacted you to read the whole novel aloud like that and, and some of the things that can be gained by reading something aloud and as opposed to just on the page. And what a wonderful opportunity that turned out to be. Dr. Russell was the chairman of the English department at Franklin and Marshall College, um, and I was assigned to be his reader. And he had, I think, maybe two student readers uh, at a time, and once once he and I got to know each other, and he realized some of the things that I was interested in, he spared me having to read student papers and correspondence, uh, and assigned me to read books onto tape for him. This was in the days before audio books existed, and uh, the essay that you're referring to is about reading Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury on onto tape. Um, in a little closet room uh, all by myself. And it was a fabulous experience. Uh, it was very difficult to do, particularly that novel. But it brought me so close, so intimately close with with what writing can do and how it can, how it is something that that you you do both writing and reading with the entire body, with your whole mouth and tongue and ears and gestures and that it's it's a uh, an engagement of all senses reading and yeah. and both um and i had to learn how to speak without any of the typical cues that fiction would give to a reader uh, he said and she said and clear delineations of time and what was happening when um at as Faulkner's use of stream of consciousness, and particularly stream of consciousness within certain characters whose consciousness was terribly limited, either by m- mental state or confusion um, or illness or whatever, um, he doesn't provide you with cues. So I had to understand how how he was signaling a writer, a reader, to to not go astray and to know where what was happening when and all of that. I had to find ways to do that out loud and it was a tremendous education in what what writing is capable of doing and the signals it sends. Um it was a full engagement for me um with wow. 
character and consciousness as well as with writing and prose as as well as with performance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I know you have an acting background too, and I was actually wondering if you had ever tried to write a play. <laughs> I haven't ever tried to write a play, and I, I'm I'm not sure I can even say why, other than some very smart part of myself knows it wouldn't have worked out. <laughs> you know, we've all okay. we all know the story of Henry James and so many other so many other writers who attempt to write plays. Um, T.S. Eliot, uh, and I just must have known somewhere inside that was not, that was not going to work for me. Uh, okay. But I do know that my both my fiction and nonfiction rely very heavily on dialogue and scenes, um, and I think that probably comes in part from the work I did as a as an actor when I was younger, um, and I think it. It taught me a lot about how how to shape character economically. Oh, great, great. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, well, I noticed that we're about to run out of time, and um, I was just wondering, in closing, if you have any upcoming events or publications you'd like to announce. I know you've got a couple of books coming out. Um, Thanks for the opportunity. Yes, next year, in 2011, in the summer, I'm going to publish... Uh, this first book of short stories called Cole Robbie, which gathers 16 stories that I considered my strongest, written over the course of the 35 or so years that I've been writing stories. Almost all of them were written in the last uh, 15 years. And then the next year, in 2012, my my next collection of poems, which is called Close Reading, uh, will be published. And I'm, oh, maybe halfway through another book of essays, memoir in the form of interconnected essays like all the other memoirs have been. I seem to be working at a, a pace that would suggest that the book the book will be done um, in two more years, maybe three, and I've been working on it for right. three years. So there all you right. go. Oh. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Well, it was so great to talk to you tonight and um just a pleasure, really. Of course, I've got, you know, 15 questions I never got to ask you, but <laughs> that's okay, you know. Um, I'm just, uh, so glad that we got the opportunity to talk, so thank you. Well, thank, you. thank you for thinking of me, and for your listeners and any, anyone else out there who's going to hear this uh, or read about it later, uh, I, let me just conclude by saying my daughter is the best-selling writer, Rebecca Skloot, um, whose book... It, the Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks has been such a stunning success this year. And please go out and buy a copy of that and give it to someone you love for the holidays because it, it will make their day. Oh, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> okay, well, thanks so much, and um, I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you, Melissa. Bye. Okay, bye. Okay, well, I'd just like to thank all of you who are listening. Our next interview will be at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on January 27th with Robin Rice, author, contemporary shaman, and founder of the Awesome Women Hub. As well, Teferit is currently offering 50% off gift subscriptions for the holidays. This special is available at our website, www.tiseretjournal.com. 
also at the site beginning on January 1st, you will be able to submit to our poetry, fiction, and nonfiction writing contests. The winner of each of these contests will receive a $500 cash prize and publication in the journal. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. We hope you'll join us again in January.